0: Hello, I'm Joyce, I'm June, and I'm Paula. We're the Cavanagh sisters, and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count In podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we will be looking at the psychological impacts of childhood sexual abuse and discussing how they manifested for each of us in our lives. I remember uh, difficulties we had even going over to the shop. If we were asked to go to the shop there was um, a whole process that went into it and Polly you were actually probably worse than the rest of us.
1: If I had to go to the shop to buy anything I had to make sure I had more money than I could possibly need. Because I had no memory, Mammy could say go get bread, milk and butter. By the time I left her presence I would have forgotten what she asked
0: me. I recall that it was a big deal for you to go, to simply go to the shop. She, she
2: couldn't bake bread before you got back. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, and that is a fact. Like, I remember being absolutely unable to speak. I was going out with this fella, and we used to babysit a lot for his sister. And I'd go into the house, and I swear to God, you'd swear somebody had cut my tongue out. I could not speak. The fear was ridiculous. Yeah. And then I'd beat myself up and say, like, You're a good, would you not just say hello? And then I'd hate myself thinking, like, how easy is it to say hello? Because I could sit with the kids when they were gone out and we'd have a great bit of crack. But as soon as I came in, I was struck down.
0: Something to do with the attention and focus being placed on you, I think. And it probably stemmed from keeping the abuse a secret because in order to keep that secret, you couldn't really let anybody close to you in case they uncovered your secret. So it was imperative that you stayed in the background, but running right alongside that would have been our need or desire for attention, for love and affection. It made the whole situation quite traumatic and you became very self-conscious and it was disproportionate to whatever the situation was. It was and it did get fear. worse as we got older. Yeah,
2: there was a huge fear of saying something wrong or saying something stupid. like Making people, a mistake. Yeah. But if people laughed, oh, that that would be the end of it. My life would be over.
1: I, w- I think I would have had a different uh, outward expression. I would have been crippled with the idea of being in any social setting and having to make a conversation. But as opposed to what you'd expect, as in to shut up and say nothing and sit in the background and hope nobody notices. If I'm nervous around anybody or I'm nervous in a situation, I just talk, 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 talk without time to even think. And then the problem is the post-mortem when I go away from that situation. Thinking about what I said. That's where the problem comes from.
2: You used to give out yards to June for doing the same thing, calling her the gop.
1: Stay! But the difference is June would go on and talk about horror and how she felt and all that. I wouldn't do that. I would just talk shy. That would have been alien to
0: you. I can understand yeah. that. But we all did the same thing. We just did it in our own way.
1: The
2: thing I can't get over is the level of fear was really disproportionate. Going to the library and I'm in a queue and I heard them saying to somebody, um, "Yes, yeah, sorry, you that's a bit overdue. You owe me twenty cents." Well, I nearly had a stroke. I'm thinking, "Oh, jeez, what he I haven't got enough money. I had to leave the queue. Crazy yeah.
0: stuff. I remember the fear around being late for school. If you were late, you had to go in the office past the head none. I was absolutely terrified. The thoughts I would have was, "I cannot walk in that office late and then walk into the class because when you walk into the classroom." The whole class stops and looks at you. That was death. And I recalled the teacher addressing me to ask me a specific question. I looked up at her and could see nothing, only white, just like a sheet of white. I couldn't understand it. I thought I was gone blind. But it was the shock of the attention being focused solely on me. They did a weather chart and it involved two girls every day going up and filling in the weather chart to say whether it was raining or what way the wind was blowing. And of course, I went in one day and I was late and mortification that she sent me up to do the weatherboard. And that involved me finding out what way the wind was blowing. Now, I mean, how does anybody know what way the wind is blowing? I went out into the schoolyard, standing around like a tick, looking around me, praying to God somebody would pass me by. And some poor girl did. And I said to her, can you tell me what way the wind is blowing? And she said, I don't know. She'd pick up a bit of grass and see what way it's going. And I said, oh, thanks. And she went and I picked a piece of grass and put <laughs> it in my hand and it starts swaying. And I go, what difference does that make? But yeah, it was that was traumatic up. coming back into the classroom. And I slunk into my seat and hoped I would get away with it.
2: I was sent out to find out what time it was. There was a big clock at the end of the corridor. I couldn't tell her. I couldn't tell the time. And I'd stand there like a twat until somebody walked by and I asked them, what time is it? the it's the intense and irrational fear that was the thing because it really really took over
1: it's not that other people wouldn't feel that it wouldn't feel a bit anxious about a situation like that when you don't know what you're doing and you're asked to do something it's the the level of anxiety is the difference the level of it totally disproportionate
0: and even today i can recall that feeling of turning up to find my teacher wasn't in and it meant the whole class had to be split up and sent into different classes And two by two, we were sent into different classrooms. And I can still recall the terror at what class I was going to be put in with. It was the fear because now you're in unknown territory and it was absolutely terrifying.
2: But isn't the fear also related to being judged or rejected?
0: I'm not sure. I just think it's the self-conscious is disproportionate. You're so so caught up with how you appear, how it's really important how you appear. It was probably because we had our masks in place and, uh, you know, we needed them to stay in place. Me, it was
2: more of a level of I, I wanted to be invisible. It was important. And at the same time, the opposite end of that was Jesus, can nobody see me? Yeah. It, once the attention was put on me and they could have been saying a compliment. They could have said anything. It didn't
1: matter what was coming after my name. See, it's that kind of fear of of having attention and that fear of being judged would have only encouraged me to develop that f- need for perfection and nothing was ever good enough. But the pressure I had to not get caught out by being stupid, being thick. Yeah. The pressure of
2: the social demands, they were misread by us. We were saying about the energy required to live and survive in the house to hold on to that secret. That anything else was like putting us on overload. But it's
0: the intensity. I know you could say anything could tip us over. But it was on a tear line trigger. It did confirm for you individually. That yeah. God I must be stupid. These feelings we're talking about. They stayed with us for our, our whole lives. I recall even as an adult. Going out for the, for the night. And myself and my best friend. Would spend 10 minutes outside the door. Arguing over who was going in first. And then we'd nearly make like a good missile dash for the nearest <laughs> sea. Your feet.
2: Yeah, all over
0: Yeah. You'd be walking in the door, head down. Like, what was going to happen? People <laughs> were going to look at us? This was this utter fear and terror of somebody looking at you. And once you sat down, there was a sigh of relief. I actually very rarely went to the toilet until the end of the night because once I sat on that you'd nothing moved me. But again, it was the levels yeah, it's the that intensity. are disproportionate, you know, for people who have been sexually abused are traumatized, are, Yeah, traumatized, neglected in any way. And I, I, when I think of it now, I've loads of stories uh, of where this impacted my life, where I, I didn't think this, you know, it was that big of an issue. But in fact, it was everywhere.
2: It's kind of more <coughs> understandable when we were kids, we were all being abused, trying to function, trying to get on. The sad thing is that in our adult life, that didn't change. It was absolutely irrational. Yeah. But like I remember we were turning the sod, building this building and now all I had to do was say, Uh, Welcome here there was some politician going to speak. I could not get that line out. I practised it till I was blue and I practiced one line. Yeah. In the end I had to give the mic to
1: somebody else. I couldn't say it. It was crazy. I think what's the hardest bit about it, you're right in the fact that as a child you even looking back as a child, you can say, all right, fair enough. That was that was understandable, excusable. But I went back to college as a mature student. Like I was in my forties when I went back for forties, I think, and I could not sit down and have a conversation with other people in the class without the trauma attached to it. That fear every day of going into college, of coming up with schemes and plans of how to avoid those breaks, how to avoid the lunch, so I used to drive in and then go out to my car and sit in the car for lunch sooner than just sit with people in the class because it was overwhelming. The fear was overwhelming and I couldn't cope with it at all.
0: Sure. I mean, only 2011 when our first book was published and we had a a book launch and we had to each get up and talk. You were like a human vibrator <laughs> Colin, on the stage.
1: And the gas thing is now I could sit and talk to a, a group of people and I wouldn't feel that. If we're talking about this. Yeah. And yet I would still struggle in a social setting, sitting down and and doing what I would consider the small talk. And again, it comes into that feeling fucking stupid and having nothing to bring to the table. In my mind, if I have nothing of any interest to talk about, then what am I doing there? Yeah,
0: it's the damage that the trauma and the abuse did to our self-esteem. And it took years to overcome.
2: Yeah, but at the same time, I would say to you, like for me, I went through my whole life like that. Never for one second did I question it. As far as I was concerned, that's the way I was. I never thought, well, one, that I could understand it or I could deal with it or it could ever change. Do you remember we were in the degree course and we had to give a presentation? Wonder <laughs> of Divine Jesus. It was disastrous. I couldn't have shook anymore. I couldn't speak. My mouth was (laughs) dry. And then I was stuttering. Oh, my God. And then by the end of it, which was four years later, just because we constantly had to be challenged, we did it perfect. Mm. So I'm just saying I never questioned it. I never ever thought that this could end. It was like the absolute acceptance that this is the way it is and you know tough shit we can't be good at
1: everything i didn't connect it to uh, the abuse i never once thought one had anything to do with the other until we did some research i know i never connected the dots
0: and that's another reason why it's so valuable to look back because you let yourself off the hook when you realize that everything all of your behaviors were impacted by the abuse and you were acting out of that place so everything you did was a reflection of your abuse and the changes that are created in you.
2: Yeah, and without that connection, you would just assume, I mean, there's so many people suffer with social anxiety. There's so many people have panic attacks. We would have just assumed you were one of those people. We would have never connected the dots. Only the circumstances we were in meant that we were actually challenged.
0: Yeah, and because everybody does experience some level of social anxiety, we would have had no reason to assume that anything we did was anything to do with the abuse. Which goes into the whole thing of how we were programmed. The fact that we
2: had childhood sexual abuse. We never really had a life before abuse. It happened so young and it went on for so long that it's almost like being programmed as a computer. It absolutely And you is. would have never questioned that program ever. That's <laughs> the sad thing because we did hear all our lives, every one of us. We were always called thick, stupid and we never questioned that.
0: That social anxiety, that self-embarrassment, we, we didn't know what that was. We didn't know that was part of no, the response to the abuse. Like that. So that just confirmed for us time and time again. Yeah, she look at me. I am stupid. I can't do anything right. I make a mess of everything. Holy wholly show myself. The mortal fear of being caught uh, out. out or laughed at was so painful. And yeah, the contradiction to that is we grew up in a house where everybody laughed at everybody. The judgments that went around our house were horrendous. You only had to get up off the chair and you'd be slagged. The most shocking thing is, if we didn't actually challenge ourselves to answer the
2: questions people keep asking, how did we recover? How did we talk about it? How did we laugh about it? How do we joke about it now? If we didn't actually try and answer those questions, we would have gone on to the rest of our lives except that this is who we are, rather than this, this is, is the result of the abuse we suffered.
1: It's not that it doesn't stay with you. Like it's not gone, but it's not extreme. Yeah, because if you
2: walk into a place where you feel uncomfortable, you will now question yourself. Whereas before, that wouldn't have entered my head to question or challenge anything I was feeling. That's, I would say, the biggest benefit.
1: I would allow myself to find ways to manage that situation as opposed to condemning it. So now if I go somewhere and I go more than once, I know I tend to sit in the same seat now i say okay that's acceptable as long as i have to do whatever it is that gets me through something without hating myself for the fact that it's difficult to do there's something really
2: really freeing about knowing this stuff seeing the connection and also knowing that no this is not something you have to accept it can be challenged
0: and particularly with childhood sexual abuse the realization that uh, that has come upon us through our research is that there's nothing that we did was wrong was unusual um, could you find a fault with it you know it just means that there isn't a thing that you've done as a coping mechanism that isn't understandable and forgivable and it's so worthwhile to go back because there's nothing that's going to be left when you're done you can forgive the past entirely
2: but it's easier to forgive when you absolutely understand.
0: Well, you can't do it unless you understand. Yeah. You need the information. And then with the information comes understanding. And then
1: naturally forgiveness. If you don't do it, what's the alternative? You live a life of hell. That's Well,
2: that's the alternative is I would have never challenged that. I would have been like that forever. I would have never been able to be in public. I would never feel safe. I would have panic attacks. I would never, ever... Put myself out to
0: speak. I don't think I'd be here. I really don't. I just, I do feel that whether you choose to deal with this or not is irrelevant. It comes up, it seeps out to the point where it destroys your life. I firmly believe I don't think I could have coped with it on that, on the level it was on, um, without ever understanding or having the information or the awareness or the forgiveness if I wasn't moving in that direction. I honestly don't think I would be here. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey, only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no faking it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits.
2: Thank you for listening. Hopefully some of the information we have shared will resonate with you. This will give you a deeper understanding of yourself plus allow you to move into a space where you can show compassion to yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you reacted to the abuse, it was normal. We are hopeful and optimistic that those in any position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So
0: please spread the word and share the information. Thank you. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or contact us directly on thecavenessisters at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Sisters Count Me In podcast. We're going to leave you with a quote which you can carry with you throughout your day. Just for today, I want you to focus on the good you bring to the lives of those closest to you. Say to yourself, I'm a good person. I'm kind, I'm generous, people enjoy my company. You can add to this list and don't worry about how you feel when you say it, the feelings will come later. It's important that you build yourself up every day and be kind to yourself.